Turn your Bible to 1 Samuel. Sorry, 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings 3 will pick up what we're discussing with God and government with a great example of what should have been fantastic government and what was a, a raging tragedy. It's Shakespearean in 1 Kings, the, the hero set up with great potential who fell because of a tragic flaw. And of course, we reference Solomon. By way of review, we're studying God and government because it's such a major theme in the Bible and it's not known uh, in Christendom. It's not known among evangelicals the way God and government are interrelated. They're considered because of the cultural impact of our secularist culture on the, the body of Christ because we absorb what the world thinks and just re- try, to, try to Christianize it. We've had this idea of separation from government and Christianity or government and faith or government and religion. We've got this big thing. And part of it's because in our uh, efforts to understand how to live this life, you have the, the famous wall of separation language of Thomas Jefferson, which has become the basis for a phrase everyone uses, the separation of church and state. And as we start, I want to reinforce with you, we are not advocating theocracy or the union of religion and state, okay? We're not saying that we need a state religion. We're not saying the Bible requires a theocracy or a government of one religion over all the people. We're not saying that at all. We're saying inductively the Bible has a lot to say about government, and what the Bible says about it is um, that you can expect nothing but trouble in human affairs except for the clarity and the light shed on the path by the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying Jefferson was wrong for saying there should be a wall of separation between the church and the state in as much as what he meant, in what he meant by that. And here's what Jefferson meant. To the Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, who were complaining that the established church that was paid for by their taxes was the congregational church. So we're just like Europe. We have a state church. That's not right. And we don't have legal rights to worship under our conscience as Baptists. And, and we, have, we want redress. We want this redress and, and to be free from this tyranny of the congregationalism. And infant baptism, which is, uh, to us is, is a, a wrong practice. And I won't say it's a heresy, but it definitely goes against what we think the Bible is saying. And we can't worship God as congregationalists. We have to do it as people that baptize believers. Congregational Baptists is really all they wanted. And Jefferson's point was that the government shouldn't be weighing in on whether you baptize babies or whether you baptize believers. It shouldn't be supported by the, like the clergy shouldn't be being paid by your tax money. There should be a distinction. There should be the separation between the practices of government and the practices of the local church. That's the idea. And we, we relish this. We, this is part of the Establishment Clause in the First Amendment. We want that. We want that. There's a problem. As government has increased its reach... Now, the word government is synonymous with the word public. Public life is governmentally regulated in every aspect. 
The reason that is so, I believe, culturally, is because of the government compulsory education. The local schools are government buildings. They're exercises in local government. Have you heard of the, um, the, the Department of Education at the federal government? A lot of money goes into this as tax money. And it's governmentally regulated so that the children are growing up in the halls of a government institution and they're told, and I grew up this way in East Texas in public school, we're growing up thinking that there is this rigid separation between who we are at church and what we do think say in our everyday life in government school. We have bureaucratized life for the children and they've grown up as government functionaries who don't, who don't understand how they could think, love God, think about God, worship God, pray to God, make their decisions based on who God is, make their argumentation based on what God said. How could we be a Christian in every aspect of our lives if we cannot bring Christ into government functions? And that's the, that's the division. And here's the problem with the wall of separation by way of introduction. The problem with the wall of separation between church and state is that the church is not the functioning and governance of the local church. That's not what church means. The church is the people. Everybody that Jefferson's talking about when he says he doesn't mean it this way because there's an errant view of what church is. The whole country is the church because they all go to, they're all Christians. The body of Christ is everywhere. That was the culture. And they're arguing among each other about how to baptize as they should because there's an error that was pervasive in New England and still abides in most of the mainline denominations. But, but they were Christians. They were the church. That's who we are. And to say that there is a separation between church and state means that you are no longer part of the state because you're part of the body of Christ. And if you do that... Think about that. You don't have any legal rights. You don't have the voting right. You don't have any of the things that we actually do have as citizens of this country. Our secondary citizenship. We're kind of dual citizens, right? We, we, our first citizenship is in heaven, but we also are American citizens. And so this has been a problem because it's more complicated than just, well, don't talk about God in public or don't talk about God in school because it's a school and that's the separation of church and state. But see, they're in, the children are indoctrinated with this and Kant's idea that we can only know the things that are apparent to our reason and, and without re- reference to revelation, that, that that's where we live. And, and Kant has won. The religious stuff isn't important. The Christian thoughts that are supposed to pervade every aspect of our lives are irrelevant. And after all, we are teaching the true and real and important stuff like science. And history devoid of any divine interpretation and, um, and math, but no God who makes it so. And all the things that are disconnected from the creator. What I'm saying is that in this experiment that we have in this culture, we have lost track of what God actually says about government. And we've adopted a, an errant view of separation, which is impossible to hold as a practicing Christian. You can't, in this culture, abide the separation of church and state because you are the church and you have to function as part of the state. And this government was founded by people that were all 
part of the church, almost all of them. The, some of the, the big names probably were not Christians, but the majority of people that signed the Declaration of Independence and ratified the Constitution were absolutely believers in Christ. They were the church. They were a part of the body of Christ universal. So, so what I'm saying is our paradigm is broken. We don't understand how to do God and government because we've got this ridiculous separation that we can't really think critically anymore. And what I'm trying to do is go back to the Bible and say, the Bible actually teaches us about this, and it's a great way to kind of survey what our responsibilities are. Now, the reason I'm doing this, beloved, is not because I think we're going to solve the problems of local or state or federal government uh, here at Preston City Bible Church. I don't think that's going to happen. I think Jesus is going to come back before we ever get um, a balanced uh, government, where we ever get the, the debt paid off. I think the Lord will come back before the, the debts are ever co- covered. That might be an economic collapse here. They may call in the debts and we fall, and then everybody else falls under that same weight because of the interrelatedness of the, of the economies. And that, and that world economic collapse could be the, the big problem that uh, brings about the need for one ruler to come up and unite the clans, unite all the nations, and, and, and bring the new era, the new era of peace, the new kingdom. And, um, and everyone worships him and bows, bows, bows down to him as a god, and the Jews will call him the Messiah. And, um, and he is uh, God's enemies, man. He is the worker after the works of the devil who is empowered by Satan himself. We call him the Antichrist. That, that's on the horizon. There is a one-world government, and how that's going to come about is a matter of speculation. But one suggestion that we've seen in recent history is a great anti-Semitic person like the Antichrist will be, will rise from, has, ha, this happened recently, r- rose from the ashes of economic collapse and said, we have a better way. And empowered by Satan and a, a world system opposed to God and promoting Satan's objectives, it's easy to see a world economic collapse could give rise to Antichrist. Nevertheless, we're not going to solve the problems of government here. I think that it's all going to go bad and from bad to worse. Uh, boxes of classified documents in the garage next to the Corvette notwithstanding, it's going to go uh, from, from bad to worse. And, and that's just today's little, you know, every little story is a little rice grain and the massive, you know, gigantic load of, of, of horrors. What I'm suggesting, though, is that you and I have been groomed for rulership. We've been called out to rule with Christ in his coming kingdom, and we should think about what that looks like. Furthermore, I think we should live our lives under what's been given to us, as governors, as administrators, as delegated representatives of God to do what he's given us. Because government doesn't mean the state. Government means making decisions with that which has been entrusted to you. And there's a government of self and of marriage and of, uh, of family and household and business. And uh, even in the local church, there's government. And the problem, I think, one of the great problems that would solve a lot with our broken culture is individual self-government. That was always the understood prior condition for this form of government. That's why it doesn't work. There is no individual self-government. So let's review a little bit. I'll give you a quiz. Volition, I'm calling the great blank from God to man. The great what? What'd you say? Great. Who said it? The great delegation. 
So this is, this is the game I like to play every once in a while. I teach seminary classes, and um, this is the what am I thinking game. So, you, you know, you're right, the other things you said, but I'm calling it the great delegation. God's sovereign. He has all the right to make all the decisions, and he's given man whoosh, the responsibility to make the decisions he's given us. And, and the, the theologians that go back and say, well, we have to conclude determinism, so you're not really making decisions, that is absurd on its face if you let, let the Bible speak. For example, what did God do with Adam on day six when he made all the animals? He brought the animals to the man to see what? What he would name them. And whatever the man named the animal, that was its name. It doesn't say that God reached into Adam's brain and concluded for Adam what the animals would be called. It says God brought the animals to Adam, and whatever Adam named them, that was its name, because he was giving Adam dominion over the creatures, as God had said. So it's the great delegation. The great delegation. Volition makes possible, I conclude, I contend, at least two key things. Two key things. First, blank, which is another word for relationship with God. Starts with an R. Who said rapport? Yes, rapport. Relationship with God, or one word, rapport. The T is silent. All right. A relationship with God. What's the other thing? Oh, I didn't animate it. That was so fun until I screwed it up. Rule. Our rulership of God's works under God's authority. But you, I want you to remember this, the two R's that are possible and only possible because of God's delegation of volition. You can have a relationship with God, which is impossible without, without the, the ability to choose. And rule, the ability to rule. You can't rule unless you can make decisions. All right. The successful use of volition is always according to God's blank. Bam. Revelation. Successful rule is always by God's revelation. Now, I don't mean the book called the Apocalypsis or Revelation at the end of your Bible. I don't mean that by the word revelation, even though I capitalized it. I mean God revealing himself. Every word from God is revelation. Everything in nature is God's general revelation. God's special revelation is when he speaks. And the most explicit and exquisite special revelation is the word. Who became flesh and dwelt among us. In these last days he's spoken to us, Hebrews says, through his son. That's revelation from God. And so that's the missing link in the separation of church and state for the Christians who are functionaries in the state. They're told you can't engage with reality according to God's revelation. That would be theocracy. And the answer for them always is, uh uh-uh. Every individual has a conscience It's a God-given thing, and I can make my choices according to my conscience. And I don't care what the judge says. Well, you can't make your decision based on, look, I am responsible to God with my conscience for making my choices according to his revelation. And that's the proper, always proper use of volition, which implies that you need to be about God's revelation. I need some input so I know what should be the output. I need to intake the word so that I can apply it. And that's a volitional move, both directions. The abuse of volition, making wrong decisions. A wrong decision is the abuse of your volition. It comes about for at least two reasons. Anyone want to guess? This is the fourth time I've done it, uh, but I'm doing it by way of quiz just to kind of change things up. How uh, do we 
get to making wrong decisions? The first is blank of God's revelation. Ignorance of God's revelation. I don't know what God wants. I don't know. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what God read. Take up and read. It's magnificent how clear the word of God is. Should I worship idols? Should I worship Ashtoreth or Milcom or Molech? No. You shouldn't do any of that. Why? Well, how do I know that I shouldn't? God told you. Well, when did he tell me? In Exodus and Leviticus, Moses was very clear. And God, he told you the whole story of how God set him up to give you his revelation. So Moses is the caretaker that God has designated. It's God's way. It's a protocol method called a prophet. So we're ignorant of God's revelation. And part of that is because we don't believe it is what it is. Oops. What's the other piece? We have a weak what? Faith. Ignorance of God's revelation or a weak faith in it. Right? Everybody struggles with this, as I've said many times. This is very important theologically. Your faith is not a consistent, perfect, you know, absolute. Your faith is a wavering thing along with you. Right? And we're strong sometimes and weak sometimes. And I believe the strength of your faith is in proportion largely to your intake of God's word. I believe the strength of your faith in the moment is proportionate to your intake of God's word, to your time and prayer with him, to the nature of the relationship or rapport. So this, I think, is a really helpful way to think about human nature, about the way man relates to God, what the Bible is saying about decisions that we have to make. And that's what government always is. Government is always decisions with that which you've been entrusted, that which you're over, you make decisions for. That's always what government is. It's a great delegation. We said there are the derivative institutions of divine authority, derivative institutions, like if I make a choice, I can get married. And if I make a choice tomorrow, I can stay married. And if I make a choice every day, because God said it's your responsibility, I started this marriage with a choice, but every day I continue it with a choice. How about that? The continual volitional expectation of God's institutions, marriage, family, government, nation, and local church, all institutions of delegated authority that all hang on individual volition. Remember, when you learn how to work within the institutions and the scriptures, the writer of scripture is talking to individuals and their personal responsibilities under God in those institutions. For example, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It doesn't say parents mechanically force children to obey. You can't. It doesn't say parents, with your holy remote control that God issued you, along with your infant, control that baby. It doesn't say that. Understand, I understand. I believe parents are supposed to exert a dominant influence and control in the direction and training of their children. There is a parent-children relationship, but look how God does it. He serves up a responsibility through the Apostle Paul to children. You, child, choose to obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And then he serves up a responsibility to parents. Fathers, don't uh, provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the admonition of the Lord. Bring them up in the, in the Word of God. And so both parties 
are in an institution that God designed and both parties before him have volitional responsibilities that they have to make. So a parent who is doing his best with the, with the admonition in the Lord part, and they're not provoking an anger part, a parent that's not perfect but serving God in this area might have a child. I know some of you are going to be shocked by this, not at all, might have a child who is going to consistently use his volition or her volition in a wrong way. And it's a volitional responsibility God places on both parties. Oh, no, no. Oh, we've got Proverbs 22, 6. You need to read it. You need to read it. And you read it in Hebrew, and it doesn't do what we want it to do. And you can't use it, Job's friends, as a way to go cudgel your, your friends whose children have trouble. You can't beat up parents based on their children's performance. According to Proverbs 22, you can't because it doesn't even do that. What you can do is go to, I recommend Ephesians 6.1. Ephesians says, children, you are responsible under the Holy Spirit to obey your parents and the Lord. And parents, you're responsible to train them up. And both parties have to show up. And it's amazing how we all try to cancel one or the other party's volition. You're right, and as much as you're right, you're wrong, and as much as you're wrong. These all are positive or negative volition to what God has said. These are all matters of your choice, what you do in your marriage, what you do in your relationships. Try to find a complicated issue. Find a complicated mess. Think of the messiest marriage you know of. He's done, and she's done, and they've reacted, and it's just this garbled nightmare, right? I am Alexander with my sword, and we're going to cut through Gordian's knot and say, whoosh, you gentlemen have responsibilities. You ladies, you have responsibilities. Let's get to the job at hand that God has given us. And that's harsh language and for people that are in a lot of trouble, but I just did slice through all of it. It's trying to be surgery. Surgery is supposed to help. So this is the way relationships, this is the way all the institutions are designed to function. You never want to cancel God's role in these various relationships. You never want to cancel the individual's walk with God in any of these relationships. I could do a whole chapter right now on this. What about that jealous man who is so consumed with this weird, like psychological problem, this, this psycho psychopathy about his wife, or his girl, that he wants no competition and he gets jealous of her devotion to God, her desire to serve God. He's so hung up on himself that he's blurring the distinction between worship of God and love for himself. After all, the way he thinks as a narcissist, he can't envision someone loving God since he is his own, is his own God. This is an insanity that exists that people get into, and writers of romantic things have talked about this a lot because it's been an experience people have had. And as ladies, we tell, tell, and all you who have young people that you love, look at the person's character, vet their character, look for personal integrity, look for these horrible tendencies that people have that unchecked are going to destroy the individual and whoever's around them. You don't have to marry such a person. Oh, but I think this is the one. No, probably not. Swipe or whatever you do, like move on. Some of you are laughing, you shouldn't be. This is not, this is not for you because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem in character. 
But just imagine that circumstance where he, what's his problem as he's not honoring God's image in this woman and her responsibility to God? And what is her response? What's her recourse? This is the Rapunzel problem. There's no witch, it's him. He's got her in the tower. He's locked her up. He's the witch, which is crazy. What do you do? Well, she has her responsibilities to God. He's got his responsibilities to God. And she needs a, probably, she probably has a more robust prayer life than you and I do because she's under a constant hardship. And so these institutions really are about how you relate to God in the tasks at hand. You pull God out of any institution that he is dealing with individuals. You pull him out of it and you end up with, a, with, with insanity. The, the morass of our time. And for example, marriage. All right, this is the arc of King Solomon's reign in 1 Kings, as you summarize the reign. The first thing you see in chapter 2, we read last time that David has a final charge to his son. David has taught his son quite a bit, according to the Proverbs that Solomon wrote when he said, my father taught me. But in 2 Kings, or 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4, you have David's final charge to Solomon in summary form, and then he gives him sp- some specifics about the things that need to happen to set up the kingdom going forward. And it includes a lot of executions, it turns out. In 1 Kings chapter 3, though, you have God appearing to Solomon after Solomon uh, creates a massive sacrifice. God appears to Solomon in a dream and tells him, ask whatever you want. And Solomon asks for wisdom. The arc of the story uh, in this case is now at its pinnacle. The highest moment of Solomon's life, I argue, is here. When he doesn't know anything, he at least knows that he doesn't know anything. And he asks God for wisdom because I'm like a little child. I don't know how to rule. And God says, okay, since you didn't ask for yourself riches of any sort but the riches of my wisdom, I'm going to give you both and make you an example. This is the operation beacon that God had designed Israel to, to enjoy. They were to be a people, a city set on a hill. I know politicians have used that of our country, but it wasn't said in the Bible of our country. Israel was the beacon. Israel was the place where God, the creator, is their God. They're the people that rest on day seven like dad. Israel was to be a a priest among the nations that all the nations could look to. And one day they will all stream to Jerusalem to hear and be taught of the instruction of Yahweh. But this was God's design for the kingdom. In fact, it's always his design for the kingdom that all nations would benefit from Israel. And so Israel becomes this beacon. How did God light the beacon? He gave Solomon massive storehouses of wisdom and of wealth. And of wealth. But at the end, Solomon is just a proverb. The writer of Proverbs himself becomes the greatest proverb of the Bible. That Solomon was as wealthy as he was going to be just because he had wisdom. And all the other accoutrements of wealth did nothing to help him. In fact, they destroyed him. You have a description of Solomon's great wealth in 1 Kings 4, and then God's permission and his and Solomon's execution of building the temple. David had set up all the resources for the building of the temple, and then Solomon basically executed the plan that David had uh, designed. God wouldn't let David build the temple. It wasn't his plan for David. It was his plan for his son. And don't misunderstand. It is not God saying, because you had wars that I sent you on, I'm not letting you build the temple because wars are bad. That's not the, the issue. Because David is a man of war, God doesn't let him build the temple because God's message is one of peace. 
And so it was fitting that David's son, who could rest after David's all of David's work of warfare, Solomon rests like we have since World War II in the peace that his father provided. And so Solomon gets to build a temple, and that's God's design. And you have the story of Solomon's encounter with Hiram, king of Tyre. They were best buds, and they worked together so much. At this point, we already know in the story, Solomon has married Pharaoh's wife of Egypt. He's taken an Egyptian wife, and uh, we have no idea about her faith. We have no idea about her worship yet. But his practice, and that's a, that's a union of two kingdoms for treaty purposes, as has been done throughout world history. So Solomon builds a temple. And in 1 Kings 9, you have God's second appearance to Solomon, which is another clear statement of warning against idolatry. This is Solomon builds and dedicates the temple and does this massive dedication. You can read about that in those five chapters or in those four chapters. But then God appears to Solomon with a great warning in the first part of chapter 9 against following the idolatry and not walking after David. In 1 Kings 9, like the second half of chapter 9 and 10, you have another snapshot of Solomon's great wisdom and wealth. You have the story of the queen of Sheba. And all the nations are taken with the beauty and glamour, but more importantly, the wisdom of Solomon. It's like the wisdom of Solomon is the diamond and all the wealth is the setting, is the, the beautiful setting for that ring that the diamond is in. And it's a beautiful fit that Solomon's not wise out in the desert with the infinite riches of God's wisdom, you know, in, in sackcloth or in camel's hair, as John the Baptist would be. It's a setting that's fitting for his wisdom, for his riches in the things of God. And that is, that is the nature of the kingdom. Remember, we've been studying the kingdom in Isaiah, and the descriptions of what this will be like are very, very redolent, very similar to um, uh, uh, Psalm 23, the table in the presence of my enemies, the, the massive banquet that is for those who have God as their, as their householder. Uh, the kingdom is a glorious, exalted thing. It isn't, uh, we, we won't be fasting. We'll be feasting. But in 1 Kings 11, you have Solomon's idolatry, God's final words of Solomon, so the third visit from God to Solomon, and then Solomon's death. The ark of the rain is a good start, but wisdom not applied makes you a fool. And so we have a tragic conclusion. Just as David, in, in balance, on the summary of David's life, he followed after God. He had some, a couple of big failures. But overall, he served God. And his son was a blessing to him. And that his son would reign on his throne. And he did. He reigned on his throne all his life. And he died of natural causes. This is a blessing to David. It's said again and again. The opposite is true of Solomon. His son Rehoboam is one of the greatest fools in the Bible, and he loses the kingdom as his first official act. It's like his first State of the Union address. Ten of the twelve tribes walk away because of the Civil War, and Rehoboam doesn't, doesn't spend a whole lot of time on that throne because he's a fool. And it's like a curse that Solomon, like just as David was blessed with Solomon's reign, Solomon is cursed, and here's a discipline, like a final blow, if you will. Interestingly, Rehoboam is responsible for his choices. God doesn't force Rehoboam to be an idiot. He just is. By the way, I, I won't get to it today. How is Rehoboam an idiot? Do you know what causes his, his particular idiocy? Right, there's a taxation problem. Do you know what causes it? 
He won't look at his father's generation and get the wisdom from his elders. He looks at his generation. This is my generation. He looks at his generation and says, this is what we're going to do. This is our time. This is how it's going to be with us. And he doesn't know anything. And he doesn't know he doesn't know anything. He is Wiley Coyote standing on a tree branch, sawing on the branch side, not on the tree side. He's, he's sawing between him and the tree. He's cutting himself off at the legs, and that's exactly what happens. Why? Because the wealth is the wisdom, and the wisdom comes from the experience. The experience is reposed in our elders. And they don't know everything, but they have, they know a thing or two. And you don't know if you don't know. Let's go to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11 is the summary uh, judgment of God on this failure in human government. An individual with his responsibilities to God, Divine Institution 1, who's also the king over all the people, Divine Institution 4 and 5, government and nation. And so we got a lot of information on government in this catastrophic fail. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon, notice that we compare our kids to their siblings sometimes, um, but the Bible is constantly comparing David's kids and grandkids to David. Generational. Not horizontally, vertically, the prior generation. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. In 1 Kings 11.4, in detail, it says, And so at the time of Solomon's old age, his wives literally caused him to turn aside, natah, Turn aside in the Hiphil. It can mean a lot of things spread out to stretch out, but in this case, it's being used for a reorientation of his direction. And it's after other gods, after other, uh, other Aher Elohim, other gods. So this is the cause. It's the, it's the Genesis 3 story. Adam's fall is what killed us all, but it, how did that take place? Adam, uh, uh, Satan went after Adam's weakest spot, which was his wife. The relationship between the two, the, the woman designed to be responders, responding to the wrong person and Satan, and then Adam is responding to her instead of leading and all that. That is the avenue of Satan's greatest victory over the human race against the Creator, is he goes after man through woman. And it happened to Solomon, who had all these riches of wisdom. And this is why we, we have to be real careful about our various face plants, face palms that we do. Very careful about our, our, our oh, what an idiot statements. I say it all the time. See, Rehoboam's an idiot, doesn't listen to his elders. Um, I better listen to my elders, right? Solomon was so wealthy in wisdom and so good, and yet he missed this so easily. How did he miss it? Well, it's the power of God's design of this marvelous thing that he created. This marvelous thing that he created with all its great power. This thing, this thing that he built from the side of man. 
made it into a beautiful thing, a woman. This woman creation that God has made is marvelously powerful as a woman, never as a man, that, the, the, all your power is gone, as a woman. And here is the power in its abuse. By the way, how would you properly exercise that power of womanhood? You would respond with your volition to the creator according to his revelation and then marshal your massive, incredible influence on behalf of the creator's interests and his methods. God turned aside his, I'm sorry, the wives caused his heart to turn aside after other gods and his heart was not shalem, shalem, holy, where we get shalom, Solomon's name shlomo, it means complete. His heart was not complete, completely with the Lord. Holy or completely. Shalom, completeness is really the core notion of, of shalom or peace. Completeness, which involves integrity, the completeness of something. His heart wasn't completely with the Lord. I bring this attention to your attention because in this little statement, completely with the Lord, is your devotional moment, is your mirror of the word, is your heart completely with the Lord, like the heart of David, David, Aviv, Aviv, his father. His heart was not with God, holy, like the heart of David, his father. And then Solomon, Halak, he walked, which is the stock word in Hebrew for to go somewhere, but it technically means to walk. Most of the goings about are by walking. He went or walked, Solomon, after Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth. Who knows what Ashtoreth is? Another, another cognate is Astarte, the fertility goddess of the Canaanites, the Sidonians, like Hiram is of Tyre, next door to Sidon. Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Philistines. Sometimes it's Plural form, Ashtaroth, feminine plural, meaning there are many idols of this goddess. Ashtaroth is considered to be, the, in the archaeology, the counterpart of Baal, god of storm and fertilizing rain. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, according to one, uh, one encyclopedic dictionary, say that the Babylonians and Assyrians knew her by the name Ashtar, Ishtar, where we get Easter, the name, the word Easter, goddess of fertility and love. In the Bible, she's referred to as the queen of heaven in Jeremiah 7, 18. The cult of Astarte was universal in Palestine and the Canaanite, in the Canaanite period and was also much favored, especially by women in the Judean and Israelite kingdoms. Thousands of Astarte figurines made of clay have been found at most of the excavated sites of the Canaanite and Israelite periods. Some of these reveal the influence of Egypt, while others bear a resemblance to Phoenician goddesses. Astarte is usually represented Presented as a woman naked, holding her breasts with her hands, with her hair long. She has horns on her forehead, of course. I added the of course. In a temple of the Hyksos period, found in Naharia, a stone would uh, mold for casting Astarte figurines, and bronze was discovered. In the Hellenistic and Roman periods, Astarte was identified with Venus or Aphrodite in the Near East. And this is by Avram Negev um, in the Archaeological Encyclopedia of the Holy Land from 1990. So this is Ashtoreth, so basically like a Venus or, or Aphrodite-type worship that's very popular among women. 
That's the god of the people of Sidon next to Tyre. After Milcham, horror, the Shechutz, the Shechutz. What is a Shechutz? Well, your Bible might call it the abominable idol, but it's actually, it means something that is a cause for like a monster or a dread. So I'm using the word horror as a noun, the horror of the Ammonites. And this word Shechutz or horror is used many times. Now, who are the Ammonites? Those are Lot's kids. Abraham's nephew Lot had two sons from his daughters, Moab and Ammon. Moab and Ammon. So we've got the Ammonites, the cousins. Solomon did Ra, did evil, the, the evil, in the, side, the eyes of Yahweh, and he did not devote fully after Yahweh uh, as David his father, in verse 6. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. Chemosh, yes, Chemosh, the horror, the Shechutz of Moab. On the hill, the hill which is upon the face of Jerusalem, and we think this might be a reference to the Mount of Olives. As and for Molech, horror of the sons of Ammon. So Molech of Ammon, Chemosh of Moab. These are cousins. Lot was a righteous man. His sons, Moab and Ammon, become nations that worship gods that require human sacrifice. And that's what the Kamash and, and Molech worship is about. Melech to king, Malak to rule, Molech a, 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 having to do with the king, the cult of the king. Thus he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. It's kind of an equal opportunity rebellion against God. Thus he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. What do we do with Solomon in 1 Kings 11? Well, the Lord was angry with him because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. That's revelation served up to our volition. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this, have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you, that's God's word, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. This is God's consequence for not being the beacon they were supposed to be. As we close, I know we're running a little long for first hour, but as we close, I want you to think about this. It doesn't say that Solomon stopped worshiping Yahweh. It says that he's accommodating his wives. The prior verses, in verse, uh, verses 1 through 3, we have the, the catalog. The catalog of wives includes hundreds. Hundreds of wives and, seven, I think, 700 wives and 300 concubines. You know, for an even thousand. Come see my collection, you know. And God told them not to do this. This is obviously a foolish thing to do based on Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman. Do we know anything about folly with regard to marriage in our culture? Do we know anything about totally disregarding God's design? Can we expect anything other than idolatry as the consequence? It's a simple application. Because man's volition is designed to function according to God's revelation. And it's a violation of God's design anytime we do anything contrary to that. And so, the challenge. Solomon isn't just a rank worshiper of false gods. He's an equal opportunity worshiper. 
He's a Constantine. Yeah, we'll do the, the Yahweh's, my, my God, but I've got these girls and they've got their gods. And he's not really representing the creator. You can't. You can't mix. You can't. It's got to be one way or the other. And the line of scrimmage is pretty straightforward. On one side is God and his righteousness and his purposes for you. On the other side is anything else. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we see a great challenge in the life of Solomon of syncretism. Aaron tried this as well. Behold your God who delivered you from Egypt as he points to an idol. Father, it's very common in our culture in our day. We struggle with this. We don't want to be syncretists. We want to be worshipers of you according to your design and your intention because we want as our ambition to be glorifying to you. Father, let it be in our time that we understand how we should rule. Father, let our husbands love their wives self-sacrificially for your sake. Let our wives submit to their husbands loving you and trusting you as they do. Let our children obey their parents and receive the benefits of a clean conscience and, uh, and the wisdom that comes from that obedience. Let our fathers and mothers train their children to love you and serve you. Father, in every aspect of our lives, as we trust you according to what you said, work in us while we walk here in this life by faith, not by sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.